Hello, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Author podcast, sponsored by the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. I'm Dr. Cora Xu, founder and director of the network and co-host of this Meet the Author podcast. In episode 12, we are delighted to have Dr. Lena Kaufman to discuss her book with Amsterdam University Press titled Rural Urban Migration and the Algo Technological Change in China. Thank you very much, Lena, for accepting our interview to talk about your fascinating book with Amsterdam University Press. Can you briefly introduce yourself, please? Yes, of course. Thanks a lot for having me here. And so I'm currently working at the University of Zurich, where I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of History, working in an interdisciplinary project. But I'm also an associate lecturer at the Department of Social Anthropology and Cultural Studies. And I have a background in social anthropology and also in China studies. And I studied these um, subjects in Berlin, Rome, and in Shanghai. And I did my PhD in social anthropology at the University of Zurich. So I have been working on two major, slightly different projects there. And one is about rural urban migration. And I've been looking at this both in the city and in the countryside. So this is what we're going to talk about today. But I'm also working, or since about two years, I've been working on a project on um, Swiss Chinese entanglements and digital infrastructures and in fiber optic networks. And so broadly speaking about these two research foci. So I'm interested in, in the social technical study of translocal China and also of global China. And specifically, I've been interested in the transmission and transformation of knowledge and skill, and also in social technical systems, in food production, in digital infrastructures, and also in work, including in divisions of labor or gender divisions or generational divisions of, of labor as well. Sounds fascinating, and it uh, encompasses some of the uh, most uh, cutting-edge uh, areas, uh, you know, in, in our field. So I'm really excited to talk to you more about about your research, especially in this book that we are going to discuss. So can you tell us what motivated you to do research on rural urban migration and the algo uh, technological change in China? Yes. Um, so it all started from, from a general interest in migration phenomena and, and also in, in the wish to understand better the role of, of skill and, and, and knowledge in migration. And so, yeah, knowledge also that is, is transmitted outside of formal educational structures. So I started out from the city, from, I mean, doing research in Shanghai among Anhui migrants and who were working in the restaurant and um, street food sector. And then they, um, yeah, we got along quite well also during the research and they took me home to, to their rural home in, in Anhui during the Chinese New Year when they returned. And there I, I really realized how important it is to take into consideration also the places of origin. And, and I also realized that 
agricultural technologies play quite an important role in migration. I mean, also in, in other places, but in, in China in particular as well. So, and yeah, I found that this aspect has been quite overlooked in migration studies because a lot has been written on the reform period of the 1980s and the factors that, that pushed migrants to, to migrate and to leave the countryside to work in cities, such as the loosening of the household registration system and um, the new efficiencies of, of household farming that has been reintroduced in, in that time and also the yeah, social and economic necessities as well as the, the urban yeah, thirst for, for cheap labor from the countryside. So, but in, in all of these factors, what, what has been quite overlooked is that the very broad spread of, of green revolution technologies or post-green revolution technologies of the 1960s and 70s, I mean, much of this has really been pushed by the Chinese government and by local governments, has also set free millions of farmers from their land. And yeah, mainly through their labor-saving capacity. And yeah, they're really complex, um, a complex relationship to, to migration that I explore in this book. Mm, yeah, and indeed, it's an aspect that's often been uh, un, uh, sort of overlooked, you know, so I'm really glad that you have uh, attended to, to these aspects. So what are the key findings or messages of this book by Amsterdam University Press? Yes, so just in general, what this book deals with is, or what I explore in this book is the conflicting pressures of people that are of, of households. I take a household strategy approach and I look at, at the pressure that people are feeling pushed to migrate on the one hand to the cities to work there and or, or also to study there sometimes, but um, and also at the same time, they're feeling pushed to, to stay home and to preserve their, their fields or the fields that have been allocated to them um, and to preserve these as a safety net for the often very precarious situation that they face in the cities. And then the particularity with rice farming is that, or with wet rice farming is that you need a certain number of of people who stay home and who have the necessary knowledge and skills to preserve these rice fields, to cultivate them continuously. Because if you want to preserve the soil quality and, and to preserve their value, they need to be conti cultivated continuously. So yeah, so this obviously is a special challenge then because if people are moving to the city, then these people are lacking in the countryside. So I mainly looked in this book at how people deal with these, how households deal with these conflicting pressures between migration and farming. And yeah, I conducted ethnographic field work in, um, in the city and, and also in the countryside. And I looked at, um, yeah, at how rural and and also migrants deal, deal with these um, pressures. And I also relied on some, yeah, I draw on some written sources as well. So more generally speaking in this book, I, I try to advance the, and to build on, on the material turn in migration studies by proposing that we need to pay more attention to the role of knowledge and skill in migration. And I look at both 
staying and migrating household members and, and propose to look at them as a community of practice, actually. And, and in my case here, it's, it's a farming community of practice that is concerned with how to preserve the fields back home. And, and this also applies to, to the younger migrant generation who often does not have a lot of um, skills to farm anymore. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, who, or, or they lack these knowledge altogether because they have never really farmed, but, but still this resource, resource preservation for, for the family is nevertheless important and, and they need to deal with that as well. So I argue that to better understand migration phenomena and also migrant home relationships, it's really useful to, to take such a skilled perspective and, and to look at, at both of, at migrants and, and those who stay and also at their material world. So I've been paying special attention to these green revolution technologies and how they set free labor on the one hand, but also how they, yeah, also give farmers new options of, of dealing with their situation. So at the core of the book is one chapter about uh, land use strategies. And I show about 12 different strategies here. I mean, there are obviously others as well in China, but, but I mainly focus on, on a village in Hunan province. And I found these 12 strategies applied there. And sometimes also in combination, depending on the specific household situation. And so these really range from more social strategies, such as leaving behind family members, renting out the fields to others, or, or also yeah, practicing mutual aid strategies, or to also more technical strategies, such as um, yeah, using labor-saving technologies, um, like mechanization or farm chemicals, or switching to less labor-intensive crops, or to only one rice harvest a year instead of two, or yeah, to direct seeding instead of transplanting. I mean, there is a whole, whole range of things. And so to come to my findings there, I have three main findings in this book. And the first one is uh, in this regard that the social and the technical are really closely interwoven. Um, so what appears to us here as, as ostensibly technical farming decisions are really always also social decisions that are closely interlinked with the migration phenomenon. So in taking these seemingly operational decisions, farmers are actually pursuing various long-term and, and mid-term strategies and also performing social responsibilities like um, yeah, so their farming decisions take into consideration aspects like educational or career or marriage aspirations or childcare, elderly care, and also, yeah, more generally the social and, and economic reproduction of, of the household and, and of the patriline. So, and yeah, I found that all of this is, is actually materially reflected in, in the village. So in, in, in the materiality of the village and the fields. So just to give an example, um, yeah, if you see, for example, a, a field in Hunan and, and there is not rice grown in this field, but, but a local crop called lamp rush, 
then people who know they can read from this field that it's likely that there is an old woman cultivating this field because she has been left behind maybe by other household members and and then switched to this labor less labor intensive crop but but which then requires a lot of manual skills at home for processing this crop which is what what many women elderly women in the countryside have or if you see a field with long-standing rice stubbles and then yeah, people who know they can see that this must have been mechanically harvested and there are most likely some, some migrants in the city behind who, who finance this and who take care of, of the fields from, from afar. And yeah, this also brings me to my second finding, which is related to farmers agency. Mm. And so I take in this book, I take an actor centered perspective and I really don't want to deny the difficult situation that that many of the families I have met and talked to are in and and really the difficulties of of taking these decisions such as leaving behind a, a child or an elderly person and, and maybe not seeing this child for for even years sometimes and also for putting up with the really often very tiring and, and dangerous or precarious city life. But I think it's, we also yeah, need to, yeah, I don't want to really to victimize the, the people I interviewed. So I, I prefer to draw attention to their knowledge and capabilities of dealing with this, with this difficult situation. And so then I think that in the field, we can really see a more subtle form of, of agency which yeah is really often tacit not very outspoken and and really embedded in in everyday life tasks such as fertilizing a field or or how how you plow a field or harvest it and so these are really different from from outright resistance like in the scottian sense for example and yeah, I found that many of, of these strategies then they they follow farmers' own projects and and whether deliberately or not, they often actually are in line also with what the central government ex expects of farmers. So they do not always go against yeah the government, but but they also do what what I mean people still follow their own projects in doing this, but with other strategies that are really more about the de-intensification of rice farming. These ones I found that they often do also go against the government, although the central and the local governments may, may also differ here in their approach. And then my, my third finding just um, briefly is, is about to challenge prevailing narratives of backwardness and, and progress and so I found here that in, in the literature or, or in public discourse, peasants are commonly portrayed in China as, as passive and as backwards. And here I really show that, that farmers are actually also forward looking agents who really actively shape China's modernity. And so be it by, by migrating and, and literally building up Chinese cities, for example, in the case of, of construction workers, or by 
staying behind and um, by upholding this whole system and, and also enabling other household members to migrate. Mm. This is so fascinating, you know, the materiality aspect of it, but also you, you mentioned this very important aspect of their agency. And also, you know, because uh, I, I do, uh, you know, this network is about education mobility. So I'm most interested in the education aspect of, of this. And, and like, for instance, just now you, you talk about all these strategies utilized by the, by the peasants. And, and in fact, they can be very forward looking and very advanced. So, and you also mentioned that there's this second generation or even third generation sort of um, peasants or migrant parents, uh, peasants, they, they may not even have the knowledge or they may not have done farming themselves. So I'm just very interested in the education aspect. So how do they manage all these, you know, all these knowledge? Uh, how do they educate their, their younger generation or how do they manage, you know? Well, I found that much of, of, yeah, the hope is really placed on, on children. And yeah, we heard this in, in earlier episodes of, of your post podcast as well, mm. that um, yeah, farmers really pay a lot of, yeah, they really place a lot of hope in, in their children and, and education is commonly seen as a, as a way out of, of farming mm. and as a way to, yeah, to change the fate and to, um, to, to, yeah, to aim for a better life also, not only for, for the child who will be educated, but then also because that person will then eventually take care of, of the elderly parents. So a lot of investments are, are taken in view of, of educating the children. For example, I mean, this too, I found that that farmers grow, for example, certain cash crops specifically and, and instead of rice, just mm. to earn money for the children's education or, or that elderly parents migrate mm. to earn money again for, for the children. So I think this is, yeah, actually very closely interwoven here. Yeah, yeah. And it's like the, the, the household strategy or the household concept that you use. I think it's, it's really relevant, right? So the entire household sort of strategize or they, maybe sometimes they, they don't so much strategize, but they, they feel that, you know, we, we need cash. So we need to produce some cash uh, crops, crops that, that would allow them to get cash in order to support their children's education. Right. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So, um, you know, while conducting this research, was there any interesting anecdotes that you can share with us? Well, I think the, yeah, the time that really made the deepest um, impression on me was, was really the very first time I went to the countryside for a longer time. And this was when, when these Anhoi migrants that I mentioned in 2008 took me home to, to their rural village during the countryside mm. at, during the Chinese New Year. And so at that time, it, it was yeah, winter time. It, it was even snowing, even though this, this counts as, as the south of China. Mm -hmm. And there was a big snowstorm and we didn't even really know how, to, how we would get to the village. So I found myself then uh, yeah, in, in Shanghai in, in a small karaoke room, spending the night there with what felt like half of the village with me crouched into the small room and waiting for a bus that would come to to pick us up because all the other transportation means had failed yeah mm -hmm. so and when we finally then got there to to the village i i found that i really had to learn a lot of things about life everyday life in the countryside like mm -hmm. 
yeah, I had to learn how to fetch water from a well, how to build a fire from rice straw to heat up that water, and then how to, to wash myself with a bowl full of, of that water. And I really, I didn't know how, how I could manage with, because there wasn't a lot of water. And uh, at the time it was rather scarce and, and I only had a small bowl. And, and so they had to show me how, how I could manage to wash myself. And then they were laughing about me and saying, wow, so don't foreigners wash? And <laughs> yeah, it was um, quite an interesting experience that I yeah. was perceived in that way. And yeah, also it was extremely cold because it's, it, like I said, it counts as the south of China where I've been, even though there was snow outside, there was no heating. And mm. I mean, wow. yeah, and so I, I really felt a lot of also physical discomfort or I wasn't really used to, I mean, coming from a northern country, I, I was used to central heating, but not how to keep my body warm without heating. So I had to dress extremely extremely many clothes to to cope with this physically and and then yeah the children in the village they asked me so are you a man or are you a woman I mean yeah so they couldn't recognize anymore so yeah and and this really left I mean a deep impression on me this experience I mean the next time I, I was better prepared than in terms mm. of clothing and yeah, but it, I mean, this experience really then made me aware of, of the importance of, of taking into consideration migrants' places of origin also when, when studying mm. migration and, mm. and also inspired then this book's topic. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it sounds such a striking uh, experience, right? And so you were sort of confronted with a very, very different set of realities that that was so almost shocking to you in, in a sense. So you had to like, had like a, such a steep learning curve, right? Yes. That, that period, yeah, wow, it's really striking. So um, many of our members in this network are interested in the publication process. So um, can you share with us how you proposed your book to Amsterdam University Press and whether there were any highlights or challenges in this process? Mm -hmm, sure, mm. so the first about choosing the press I, I did quite some research to figure out which press would be really suitable for this particular book's topic and mm -hmm. and then I, I found that there is this book series at Amsterdam University Press which is called New Mobilities in Asia and mm -hmm. I thought that that my book's topic really fit quite well into into this um, series so I also yeah I called up the press's editor then to ask if, mm. if they had a general interest in this topic and and they agreed mm. so I yeah I started preparing a book proposal then and I yeah put quite a lot of effort into this book proposal and I, I found it very helpful here to to have some book proposals of of colleagues of mine who had already published um, books and, and to look at, at how this type of genre is, is written because it's not something that we write very often in, in our academic lives. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, so in, in writing that proposal, I then also asked colleagues to, to give me some feedback on, on the proposal and I, I handed it in and then and, and it was, um, eventually accepted and they invited me to to hand in my man, man, 
my manuscript. So, and yeah, preparing the manuscript then apart from incorporating a lot of feedback that I had received from colleagues and also during conference presentations um, and also just trying to, to make the manuscript more readable to, to a wider audience. Um, yeah, I found it, I, I took some books from the same series and I looked at, at especially at the introductions and conclusions to, to learn more about the type of structure that is expected from, from the book and especially the introduction. So, and I, yeah, I did that and I found that there were some similarities in, in how these books were presented and I, I tried to do that similarly. And then, yeah, I also found it very useful before the very first submission of my manuscript to, to really set myself a, a time limit on when mm -hmm. I would submit the manuscript <laughs> because it's so easy to, to go on for ages and to work more and more. And so I just, yeah, I, I just set a deadline and, and I submitted the manuscript by that deadline, knowing that I will have to revise things anyway after it passes the peer review process. And yeah, so then it went quite smoothly. Actually, I, I received very constructive and, and positive reviews also from two researchers who I really admire a lot and, and who I've always appreciated a lot. And yeah, luckily they, they revealed their names to me then and after, after the reviews. So yeah, the main challenge then for me was really to, to revise the manuscript according to, to the reviews during this really coincided with the time that the coronavirus lockdown um, yeah, was, took place in, in Switzerland. And, and I had care duties at the same time while having to revise the manuscript. And wow. yeah, that was quite challenging. But I, I was yeah, lucky here to, to have really very concrete suggestions from the peer reviewers of what I should change or what I should add and, and this helped me to, to focus. Mm. Um, yes. And then yeah, before submitting the final revised manuscript, I again found it very difficult to, to let go <laughs> because again here I I've, I mean I found that data had to be updated in the meantime as well because the whole process took some time and, and new statistics had appeared in the meantime. And which I tried to incorporate. And, and I, again, I could have gone on for ages, but also here I, I really set myself a time limit and I, I stuck to that and mm. uh, submitted the book. And then, mm. yes, and then after, after the submission, I also applied for an open access grant by the Swiss mm. National Science Foundation, which mm. has also funded part of, of the research for this book. And yeah, luckily I got it. And so I'm yeah, really happy now that a, a lot of, I mean, to make this book available to, to mm. many people and mm -hmm. including maybe some of the yeah, research partners who can read English or, yeah, mm. or look at the photos. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it makes such a great difference that we'll have the book, be, you know, be open access, it's, you know, it's really, 
really good to to be able to share the insights of your book with a wider audience. Yeah, that's that's really nice. And also, um, so when so was this book based on your PhD thesis? Yes, this was yeah. based on my PhD thesis, which I then revised quite thoroughly. And yeah, I so found can it you? Mm, can, can you tell me the, the sort of timeline? So from your PhD thesis, you revise it and then for the first submission of the manuscript, right? So how much time did it take you to revise from your PhD to, to the first submission? Well, I mean, directly after, I mean, after the defense, I first took took a break and did not look at the manuscript ah, okay. anymore. Yeah, <laughs> also yeah, yeah. because I got employed relatively quickly in a, in a different project and, mm. and uh, had to, yeah, to, to work on that. Mm. And then I, I did, yeah, I found it helpful to print out the whole thesis and, and to really use paper and pen and to, mm. to read it through. Mm. in a whole flow and and then only then you can really pay attention to where you have maybe repetitions or or places that are hard to read mm. and and so i i corrected this first with the paper and pen and and did this yeah over over a couple of months i, I did these smaller revisions but then i i got two months off from from my project for mm. really finalizing the manuscript so then i i worked basically for two months on on finalizing mm. the manuscript for before the very first submission and and then it took again a couple of months to to have the reviews and and to yeah to to revise these mm. and there were not so many revisions actually that I, I had to do, mm. but yeah, so it's hard to say how much time. Uh, yeah, yeah, really but it's such really a painstaking play, a, a process, right? It's a, quite a long process if you, you know, now that you have revealed more about the timeline, it's, it's actually quite a process, <laughs> right? Yeah, but but it's it's uh, it's really good that you shared all the tips about you know reading your colleagues. Uh, uh, sort of proposal samples and then also looking specifically at books from the same series and looking at their introduction for instance so that you can uh, pick up the sense of their style right yeah I think these are really good uh, suggestions for our yeah, network I think I, I did this I spent quite a lot of work into this preparatory mm. <laughs> work and mm. yeah also read obviously some some guideline or some books or asked to some colleagues about the differences between dissertations and books and yeah, yeah. what what should be changed and yeah so is it true that the key is to make your writing much easier to understand much more accessible to a general audience yeah right. i mean this was one of the main jobs that i did really to to make this more vivid again and I mean, it, it quite some time had passed between the field research and then between the mm. book publication process. So it helped me mm. a lot also to to look again at old photographs from the fields or or to look at some field notes again to mm. to really also incorporate some of of the ethnographic material that I had collected mm. and to to make it more interesting to read. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I see. Yeah, that's really insightful. Thank you. So um, what are your plans or next steps for this project? Yes. So, yeah, at the moment, I'm mainly working on, on 
trying to make the book's content available to a wider audience, um, mm. for example, through seminars or blog posts or interviews and, and also like we're doing now this podcast, yeah. I think it's a, it's a really great way to share um, to share the book's content. Yeah. And yeah, because of the pandemic, it has been quite some time that I wasn't able to go back to China and to follow up on the on the book's topic. I mean, except for using WeChat and to communicate with some of my interlocutors. But so I've been mainly focusing now on, on my new project on, on digital infrastructures. Mm. But in the midterm, I'm I'm planning to to build on these two or to combine these two research foci on uh, on agriculture on the one hand and and on digital infrastructures and also global China on on the other hand and and to to make a new project out of this. Mm, yeah, that that sounds like a very exciting project in the making. Yeah, so we look forward to to learning more about your your new exciting project. So, is there anything else that you want to share with us today? Um, maybe just some two thoughts that I have now thinking about. Yeah, in the framework of of this network on on research on Chinese educational mobilities, because mm. my book is not not explicitly about education as, as we already talked about. Mm. But like, like I said, many of the strategies that I observed are, and, and many of the farming decisions and, and also migration decisions are really closely linked to, to education because many of, of these strategies aim at financing mm. the children's education. So mm. I think then, to take this on a more general level, it's really helpful here when doing research on, on education to focus also on, on all these people and also the things that are behind these educational exactly. migrants to that enable them to, to migrate in the first place. Mm. Yeah. And mm. my yeah, my second thought on a more individual level, looking mm. looking more at, at individual interlocutors, I think it's actually quite fruitful to to think yeah to bring these two foci together on educational mobility on the one hand but also on on knowledge and skill acquired outside mm -hmm. formal educational structures on the on the other hand because they're very often i mean people people often have or usually have both types mm -hmm. of i mean academic knowledge as as well as some tacit embodied knowledge and and I think yeah they are also closely interrelated in in a person or or in society so I think it's quite fruitful also to to look at both of these aspects together. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, and I think this is such a resounding reminder for researchers in education mobilities because it's so important to take a systemic uh, sort of view, you know, to look at things as a whole, right? Like the uh, education decisions are often motivated by or shaped by the, you know, these argo technological sort of considerations or materialities and vice versa. So, yeah, thank you so much for your for your reminders and, uh, and thoughts. These are really, really helpful for our, our network members. Thank yeah. you, Lena. Yeah, thanks a lot, Cora, for having me. Thank you. We are delighted to have this opportunity to listen to Lena about her intriguing research journey and anecdotes. 
We thank her for sharing invaluable insights into the book publishing process and her resounding advice about paying attention to the materiality of life in educational mobilities research. We wish Lena all the best with developing further research projects. Thank you all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Author podcast, sponsored by the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. I'm Dr. Cora Xu, founder and director of the Network and co-host of this Meet the Author podcast. In episode 12, we are delighted to have Dr. Shangshan Lan to discuss her latest articles published in Pacific Affairs and in American Anthropologist on rural Chinese students studying abroad in Korea and the precarity of white teachers in China's English language teaching scene. We are delighted to have this opportunity to listen to Shanshan about her intriguing research journey and anecdotes. We thank Shanshan for sharing invaluable insights into the article publishing and academic writing processes. We wish Shanshan all the best with her longitudinal project on young Chinese students studying abroad and her ongoing large-scale China-wide project. Thank you all. Hello everyone, welcome to Meet the Author podcast, sponsored by the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. I'm Dr. Cora Xu, founder and director of the Network and co-host of this Meet the Author podcast. In episode 13, we are delighted to have Dr. Shangshan Lan to discuss her latest articles published in Pacific Affairs and in American Anthropologist on rural Chinese students studying abroad in Korea and the precarity of white teachers in China's English language teaching scene. 